Hello, everybody. Welcome back to North Idaho Now. This is episode 62 for September 3rd. Chance Watson and Madison Hardy bringing you the news today. And this episode is brought to you by Hecla Mining Company. Hecla Mining Company is a leading low-cost silver producer with operating silver mines in Alaska, Idaho, and Mexico, and is a growing gold producer with operating mines in Quebec, Canada, and Nevada. They are the largest primary silver producer in the U.S., responsible for one-third of the silver produced in our nation. Their philosophy is to operate mines safely by promoting a deeply rooted value-based culture, leveraging mining skills over the company's long history, and by innovating new practices. To learn more about Hecla Mining Company, please visit HeclaMining.com. How was that one, Madison? 23 seconds. Ooh. I wasn't going for the speed on that one. No. Clarity. I was trying to enunciate my words. <laughs> it happens. Madison, what's going on? Well, you know, it's Friday. Yes, it is. Labor Day weekend's coming up. Yeah. You have any plans? Uh, no, not really, actually. Kind of excited about that. <laughs> Just going to kick back? Yeah, relax a little bit. I like that. That's good. How about um, you? I'm trying to think. Not really too many events going on or anything in the area. Uh, there's there's a couple Labor Day events. Yeah? Yeah. And I think next weekend there will be a lot of uh, um, September 11th events as well. Yes. Yes, so. absolutely. Um, I have a chilly – we were just talking about it. I have a high school reunion coming up. Mm. Yeah. Class of 2011. Class of 2011. That's wild. From Post Falls. There's a there's an interesting number of alums that Post Falls that went on and did – crazy stuff that's awesome I, I once i can't remember most of them off the top of my head but there was like a list that somebody showed me of like all the things that people have gone that from post falls have gone off and done that's cool it was a crazy list yeah i i'm definitely excited to see my tenure reunion when that yeah. comes around just yeah. what everyone's been up to you know where'd you graduate from boise high school that's right okay. yeah and there's definitely a good group of people that are still down in boise maybe that stayed there um i know a lot of people in my graduating class actually did like um kind of gap years to go abroad, mm. which was interesting. And then a lot of us really just dispersed across the country, even internationally. So that's, sure. that's cool. Did they go over to Milan? Uh, no. I just, I joke, anybody, when you, the old joke about gap years, like, oh, I'm going to take a year off and travel. Yeah, you know, I kind of had that perception going into it <laughs> as well. You know, when I would see uh, people from my graduating class, I was like, gosh, I don't know if I'd be able to do that. I wish know? I could afford to do that like that would be cool yeah i mean but I, <laughs> I just spend that same amount of money on school yeah i was gonna say usually when people are getting out of college i always thought that was a strange time to take a year off like you just got out of college most people when they get out of college they are deep into debt yeah <laughs> and you're gonna get into more debt <laughs> yes definitely a, a fear factor there i think um one thing that someone told me when i was in my junior year which i clearly didn't listen to was to that she had done the same thing I'm doing now, gone straight into a career, mm -hmm. and then she got very burnt out um, very quickly. Mm. Uh, and I think the idea of a gap year would maybe change that a little bit, mm -hmm. or maybe not going into such a professional setting would maybe help with the idea of a yeah, burnout. Yeah, what's the idea behind it? Like you're like still trying to figure out what you want to do? Yeah, I think it's... um. I kind of have associated with the phrase identity capital, ah. which is when you're kind of expanding yourself personally, maybe not professionally, mm -hmm. but sometimes that does lead to something else, which sure. would be cool. Well, and I would think that if you just graduated four years from college, you would have a semblance of what you want to do. I would hope anyway. I would hope so, yes. Yeah. It's usually, you know, it's, what is that joke? You can go into college and it's, you know, everybody kind of looks down upon like the general studies degree. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, you are average at everything great <laughs> yeah i actually have one friend that graduated with a general studies degree but not because um, oh it's not a bad thing i mean oh, any, no. any four-year degree you're gonna get some good education for sure yeah but the reason he got a general studies degree was because he was like one class credit shy of having a specific major uh -huh. being his on his diploma sure. but in order for him to take that extra credit, he would have to come back for another year. Oh. And, but if he just did a general studies degree, then he would he would, okay. he would graduate. And he did go into the career field that he was studying for, which was uh, media. So Sure. Yeah. I guess that makes sense. Yeah, it does make sense. But when you go to college, I guess a four-year. I, I mean, I, I would be more, more inclined to think like at a two-year, you're still trying to figure stuff out. I was. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was. When I went to NIC my first two years, I was definitely still trying to figure stuff out. Yeah. Which um, I think that that's why community colleges like NIC are such a great opportunity. I agree. I was just out there. I was rollerblading around 
I parked up on the dirt road and rollerbladed from there to the library, Carter Lane Library, mm-hmm. and back. And it was a really – I haven't done that in a long time. <laughs> it was actually a really nice day out. People were – it was actually not that busy either. Yeah. It had been – I was so shocked. I have not been down to McEwen Park in forever. Like I had not – it was the first time seeing the splash pad, the <laughs> basketball courts. Like that was all brand new to me. Yeah. Because I – like – it's been it's literally been this long. I hadn't no, I don't think I've been down in that area since it was still like the baseball diamonds and all that kind of stuff. So it had been a it's hot a park second. now. Yeah, absolutely. But it was cool that I could like there's literally a path on an uninterrupted path from NIC to the library and back. Yeah. And I could go further too, but Absolutely, yeah. I think that's one thing that's I that I found throughout Idaho is that we have really in touch with our natural amenities mm-hmm. you know down in boise where i grew up we have the green belt which yep. is a lot like the centennial trail where it goes along the waterway and mm-hmm. it's just a beautiful area and it's nice to see um in my reporting about like city councils how they really do want to keep it that way mm-hmm. especially around the centennial trail just keeping it right next to the water keeping that be a public area for people to use which that is awesome sense. yeah that makes total sense mm-hmm. it's very similar over in shoshone we have the the rails to trails yeah um, that goes from basically Mullen all the way down to Harrison. Potlatch. Yeah, like the yeah. Trail of the Quarter Lanes. Um, Plummer. Goes all the way down to Plummer. Like the Trail of Quarter Lanes? Yeah. Yeah. yeah trail of exactly. Quarter Lanes. Um, that, and that one day I want to do the full thing. <laughs> that would be so cool, I think. Yeah. If you started up in Mullen, it's all downhill. I think I could do that. Be able, to, fun. be able to knock it out. Probably do it in a day, you think? Yeah. I, I When I one time went to Harrison and was reporting on their, um, just their city in general, yeah. someone told me that people do do that, like go all the way from one end to the other. <laughs> just and... reporting on their city, like, yes, Harrison still exists. Or at 11. Actually, <laughs> I actually enjoy doing that story a lot. Harrison, it's here. <laughs> Harrison's awesome. Don't bash Oh, Harrison. I love Harrison. I'm not yeah. bashing it. It's a, I, as somebody who works out of a very small community. Madison, there's 13,000 people in Shoshone County, okay? I, I know. We've talked about this before. <laughs> now, I remember the first time I we went to Harrison, um, it was a part of a series that we were doing about um, growth in the area and oh, just okay. how the yeah, area yeah. is changing. Yeah. And I'd done, like, Rathrim, Post Falls. Has Harrison seen growth? It's it's different. Okay. You know, they, they're so much like a tourist area that, uh, you know, in the wintertime, there are people there. But... Um, they're visitors or something, sure. you know, or some are their visitors. Sure. And I think the city in itself has different businesses popping up here and there. But population-wise, I don't remember too much. Of, it's if hard any to grows. do hard to do winter attractions in Harrison. I would I would assume. Yeah, it's more of like a resort area where you stay yeah. for like to go to their someone's cabin or something like that. But um, you know, what really limits that city is the fact that it doesn't have many things that a growing area would need you know it doesn't have a hospital in town it doesn't have it has a very small fire um district uh, or fire protection Mm -hmm. it doesn't have a gas station it has a convenience store doesn't have a grocery store so it's like all those different kinds of things that really limit you know what you can do and considering the fact that when the first time i drove through you can drive through it in about a minute Mm -hmm. um you know there's and it's built into a hillside on water they're really restricted on which ways you can grow yep so Maybe Harrison will stay one of those small towns forever. Uh, that would be kind of cool. That would be cool. That would be the idea. You know, it's that. not, it's 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 on that spectrum of like still quaint and I think it's still on that list of like undiscovered gems kind of. Yeah, I definitely think so. And the fact that it has basically one route to go in and one route to go out mm-hmm. really keeps it in that small area kind of, you know, it, it limits. The one road through town. Kind yeah, of thing. it yeah, limits where people could go and i I, th- I think and they like it like that from sure. what i heard but yeah you're uh, i mean you're right you're absolutely limited to either going you know you take the lake road and that takes you to wolf lodge mm-hmm. which even then you're still not in town yet all the way mm-hmm. um or you head to st mary's yeah exactly so you're kind of in that in-between spot where mm-hmm. you don't really yeah i mean for better or for worse you're away from civilization and you know what? that's why some people go there that's exactly true all right let's jump into our headlines but first, 
Initial success or total failure? Mad Bomber Brewing Company, located at 9265 North Government Way in Hayden, Idaho, is a veteran-owned and operated business that has been serving North Idaho since 2013. Swing by the brewery to try the freshly tapped GI Juicy. Made with hefty amount of Citra, Mosaic, and Belma hops, this IPA is extremely fruity and smooth. Be sure to check out their special events throughout the week, including trivia on Mondays, all-day happy hour on Tuesdays, open mic night on Wednesdays, discounted growler fills on Thursdays, and live music on Fridays and Saturdays. Mad Bomber Brewing also offers a wine selection of ciders from North Idaho Cider for those who may not want beer. Located near Triple Play, come by and mention the podcast when you order to receive $1 off your first beer. Mad Bomber Brewing, recklessly brewed in Hayden, Idaho. Reckless. Very reckless. It's it's just chaos in there. (laughs) All right. Coeur d'Alene Post Falls Press headline starting with Wednesday, September 1st. Headline, Governor Calls in Reinforcements. This is by Bill Buley. Governor Brad Little described his Monday visit to the intensive care unit at a Boise hospital as, quote, heartbreaking. Patients, young to old, and two pregnant women were struggling to breathe. Most, he emphasized, were unvaccinated. Quote, I wish everyone could see what I saw in the ICU last night, he said Tuesday. The situation is so dire, he said, that only four adult ICU beds were available out of 400 in the state. Kootenai Health on Tuesday reached a record of 97 COVID-19 patients, 35 requiring intensive care. Last week, it said it converted a resource center into a 22-bed care unit to prepare for more coronavirus patients. Panel Health District reported 254 new COVID-19 cases and 15 deaths attributed to the virus on Tuesday. That brings the the death total in in the Panel Health District to 373 overall. Death counts by age are 5 between the ages of 40 and 49, 2 between the ages of 30 and 39, 2 between 18 and 29, and 313 were older than 70. Definitely, uh, the stats, pretty black and white right there. Mm-hmm. Uh, state, the state, meanwhile, reported 1,226 new cases and 32 coronavirus deaths, bringing the total of Idaho cases to 221,389 and deaths to 2,363. To help, Little said he is adding up to 370 additional personnel to assist hospitals with the, with the surge. He also called on Idahoans to get vaccinated. Quote, Our healthcare system is not designed to withstand the prolonged strain caused by an unrestrained global pandemic. It is simply not sustainable, he said. Please choose to receive the vaccine now to support your fellow Idahoans who need you. About 58,000 people in Kootenai County are fully vaccinated, which is 40% of the 12 and older population. Little said that the state is, quote, dangerously close to activating crisis standards of care, which could even mean being turned away at a hospital or someone deciding who can be treated and who can't. Quote, we are teetering on the brink and there is only one real solution. We need to move Idahoans to choose and receive the safe, effective COVID-19 vaccine now, he added. Or he said. It's disheartening to see this become such an issue. You know, um, I was listening to the podcast the other day and it's, it kind of what he was saying, we were, the healthcare system is not used to seeing this prolonged strain. Correct. You know, um, healthcare workers have been working overtime. They're going to get burned out. They are going to get burned out. And some already have. Yeah, exactly. And it is difficult when this is, I think it would be one thing if this was kind of like at the beginning of the pandemic where everyone was really rallied behind, mm-hmm. you know, everyone getting better, everyone getting over the sickness, getting through COVID and all of these different factors that were kind of like a team building mm-hmm. happiness. Mm-hmm. Um, but now that it's been so prolonged and um, comes in waves and there's a lot of dividedness about what's going on. I think so political, which it, upsets me. It, it's just sad because I think, you know, healthcare workers started off as being these people that were, everyone was so thankful for their service and mm-hmm. helping people and really backing um, healthcare workers. But now it's like divisiveness and people coming in, you know, probably sick and still being angry about the situation. Sure. And I I definitely could see how they get worn out, not only like physically and mentally, but, you know, with supplies. So that's, that's scary. There's there. Yeah. There's a lot of elements to it. Um, I'm glad that there's going to be, you know, more help coming in, but Mm -hmm. uh, at the same time, if people don't get vaccinated, this is besides getting vaccinated, you know, staying home if you're sick, you know, avoiding extremely large scale events where like if you are mm-hmm. susceptible mm-hmm. you could get sick and if you're going to go wear a mask or right. yes get vaccinated i think those are all things that we can do not only for like ourselves but for our healthcare systems and because those are real people working in the hospital absolutely and one of the things that i've you actually you and i have talked about this even throughout the pandemic is 
it, the numbers here alone, they speak for themselves. The people who are dying, the, the vast majority of these individuals are over the age of 70. Mm -hmm. Our seniors are the ones that are most at risk here. So I think above all, ab above all of the things that we're talking, everything that you and I have just talked about, just be mindful of our elders. Mm -hmm. um, they're the ones that could really not come back from this if they do catch it, unfortunately. So I think that's where the need needs to be most focused on. Yeah, I definitely agree. And then even just seeing uh, case deaths start to happen with people who are younger, you know, when I saw the five between 40 and 49, Those like, are of new. course, that's not something that, um, is like a large number, yeah. but you know, those are people like, you know, my parents' age. It's larger than the first round. Exactly. The and first round, this was, I mean, it was 94 to 92% people over the age of 65. Like mm -hmm. it was, it was definitely targeted. It seemed like it was almost targeted toward old people. Mm -hmm. Um, now it's, it's still that way, but you're right. Five, five is more than what it was, which was zero. Yeah. And even though we're still kind of in the summer phases, you know, this is holiday season is about to come up, Yep. you know, and I'm supposed to see my grandma for Christmas, and it would absolutely crush me if I could not. Mm -hmm. Yeah, uh, it's I, it's. I don't think anybody around says this is a positive. It definitely needs to be addressed um, <laughs> yeah. in one way, shape, or form. Um, just I don't know. I think at this point, you just need to stress common sense. Yeah. In one way or another, I'm. I agree. Yeah. All right, then we're going on to there's help out there. This one's by Madison Hardy. Purple Hearts adorned Coeur City Park on Tuesday afternoon to memorialize the lives of 265 Idahoans lost to drug overdose since August 2020. Tuesday marked the recognition of International Overdose Awareness Day, and September is National Recovery Month. The North Idaho AIDS Coalition members and its partnering organizations, the Panhandle Health District and Kootenai Recovery Community Center, brought these events to Kootenai County Tuesday afternoon. Increasing awareness of drug use in North Idaho is critical, NIAC Prevention Coordinator Roxanne Esperanza said. Quote, a lot of people believe that drug overdose doesn't necessarily happen here. It's a little more hidden, but it is here in our community. The CDC reported 1,221 Idahoans died from drug overdose between 2015 and 2016, and the CDC also reported um, an additional 284 Idahoans died from overdose in 2020 alone. Quote, drug overdose has continued to rise in our district as the potency of illicit substances has also increased, PhD project manager Kelsey Orlando said. Health departments are increasingly seeing a link between overdose deaths and prescription painkillers called opiates. According to the Idaho Office of Drug Policy, they can cause a euphoria or high that leads to addiction. Quote, drug use can start as a soccer mom who got injured, went to the doctor and was prescribed an opioid. Esperanza said, things like that happen every day and can lead to overdose. Orlando said recently drugs like fentanyl, a synthetic opioid 50 to 100 times the potency of morphine, are being mixed into other illegal substances. Fentanyl and the combined materials have fatal outcomes, she said. Quote, the drug overdose increase is, is present in the rate of people visiting local emergency departments in our district due to a non-fatal opioid overdose, Orlando said. In 2019, the rate of opioid overdose-related pre uh, presentations in hospitals was 7.4 visits per 10,000. In 2020, the rate nearly doubled to 13.2 visits per 10,000. Hmm. So, and I think the opioid problem we nationally is a discussion. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it's sad because... Um, you know, I was when I was talking to them, a lot of times when I think of overdose, I think of, you know, meth, heroin, sure. those kinds of things, which obviously still happens. Still does. But now it's um, the amount of addictions that are shifting more towards um, prescription medicines. Absolutely. Is, is nerve wracking. So the issue there is that it can be abused, even if you didn't mean to abuse it. Absolutely. Opioids, it's like any inanimate object. It's not inherently good or bad. Mm -hmm. And if used properly, it can be helpful. You go through these very intensive, painful surgeries or you had a painful injury, it's, it doesn't fix itself overnight and it's going to hurt. And these things can provide relief if used properly. Mm -hmm. The issue is, is that it can also take over. Yeah. And I've, I've seen it happen. Me too. Unfortunately. Mm -hmm. And I, I've also seen success stories mm -hmm. of them getting over it, thankfully. Others haven't, and I don't talk to those people anymore, un unfortunately. I don't know what the answer is, honestly. We've been we've been going about the opioid crisis for decades now. Yeah. 
Well, when I was looking into, because Idaho actually does have a working group on um, drug abuse, especially considering opioid addictions and things like that. And there are different measures that people or organizations are trying to take, you know, um, obviously there's campaigns for public awareness, but another is trying to switch people away from these kinds of medications mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. have um, more doctors prescribe alternate means of medication that will still help them. Sure. Because it's true. It's something that can happen to, like, as far as I said, a soccer mom that got injured or someone yeah. that goes on surgery. You know, I know that um, when I got my wisdom teeth taken out, I got prescribed opioids. Yep. Luckily, you can say maybe luckily lightly my horse got stolen with them in it so i never really got mm-hmm. to take any right but, but uh, again that shows like somebody might have known that you had opioids in that purse and that's why they took your purse exactly uh it's 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 a cycle mm-hmm. all right moving on do we have anything happier nope not yet oh yeah <laughs> no that's a good one okay this this might be good yeah uh, moving on to thursday september 2nd chipping away at housing crisis This is by Ellie Goldman Hilbert. Maggie Lyons is on a mission to solve the local low-income housing crisis. Working on long-term relationship-based solutions for affordable housing, Lyons is serving as the Interim Executive Director of the Panhandle Affordable Housing Alliance, or PAHA. Quote, It is possible for Kootenai County to have have affordable housing options for everyone, for our young people, our neighbors, our workers, our retirees, and our poor, said Lyons. Programs have always been available to help meet uh, meet housing and other basic needs, but Lyons said these programs aren't always effective. Quote, what often happens is an unintentional reinforcement of shame and hopelessness, she said. To Lyons, it's crucial the person receiving assistance has a personal interest in the pursuit of stability. A manageable financial investment and a focus on continued personal achievement is a step towards self-sufficiency. Part of the problem is that the general public isn't aware of actual poverty issues, Lyons said. There are different types the generational poor, and the working poor. Both groups have different struggles and access to different resources. 83% of those born into generational poverty will never leave it, Lyons said. The other group is the working poor, who, quote, spend everything they make just trying to get by, she said. In Kootenai County, HUD housing considers the median income to be 65000 a year. Someone making 50% of the median would earn $16.20 per hour. By HUD standards, low income is considered someone making $26 per hour. It's recommended that 30% of one's income be spent on rent, but with current housing costs skyrocketing, that isn't the case for most people, Lyons said. With about 65,000 households in Kootenai County, Lyons said 40% of them cannot afford basic essentials. Kootenai County is the third most expensive county in the state to live in, she said. Another issue is the housing affordability gap. Many are paying over 50% of their income on housing. PAHA will focus on two models, quote, flourishing housing for the generationally poor and, quote, asset limited income constrained but but employed, or ALICE. Yeah, that's an acronym. The concept of flourishing housing allows for, quote, wraparound resources. For example, Lyons studied a high-density housing complex that offered a patient center. Uh, parent center, rather. The parents living in the apartments run the center. Tutoring is provided for children, meals, and prepared in a group setting, and parenting classes are offered. Quote, about, uh, after about a year with these parenting centers, they saw a 30% decrease in foster care placements, Lyons said. PAHA has no openings for housing, but they're confident about the future, Lyons said. The organization recently acquired land in Post Falls. In 2022, eight low-income apartment units will be built using the flourishing housing model. Uh, we've talked about this for a while. There's mm-hmm. definitely uh, a shortage of uh, the the supply is not meeting the demand at the moment. So. Yeah, and actually, interestingly enough, um, PAHA is collaborating with the University of Idaho right now to undergo a housing assessment mm-hmm. that is covering both uh, Cooney County and a little bit of Shoshone County, I believe, um, to talk about, you know, what's actually going on, mm-hmm. you know, what is contributing, what could, like, it's not necessarily meant for solutions, but to highlight where the problem comes from. And so that that assessment is supposed to be out by the end of October, I believe. Oh. So that could be really interesting just to see, you know, what we do, what is going on. Absolutely. Because, you know, a lot of times people talk about, you know, there's just not enough homes or there's a ton of people coming in just taking the homes or, you know, it's the product uh, shortages, like, you know, wood and steel. Mm-hmm. So I think it would be interesting to see really what's contributing to this issue in our area. I think you just you hit the nail on the head. I was, it's there's a lot of factors at play here. There is a lot of factors. There is it's not just one silver bullet that can fix 
you know, you get rid of one of these problems and the situation solves itself. There's a lot of fronts that need to be addressed on this. Well, yeah, and you think about it, it's going to be a multiple year process to get us, our community to a place where we feel like this isn't so much of a crisis anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, a house, for example, kids built in a couple of months. Mm-hmm. So there we go. Absolutely. All right, let's go to Friday, September 3rd. Idaho GOP bursts Bircher bubble. This one's by Madison Hardy. Love the alliteration there. Good job. <laughs> Idaho Republican Party members killed a resolution calling for full GOP support of the John Birch Society last weekend after national advisors said it violated organizational rules. The Cooney County Republican Central Committee unanimously passed a resolution in July. The John Birch Society is an American political advocacy group that describes itself as supporting anti-communist and limited government. Critics and academics have called it an ultra-conservative, radical right or far-right organization. Text in the KCRCC's resolution linked Idaho GOP and John Birch Society political platforms through their shared endorsement of the U.S. Constitution and belief that, quote, the strength of our nation lies with our faith and reliance on God, our creator. The document also states that the KCRCC, quote, urged Idahoans who do not support our party platform to, quote, voluntarily disaffiliate from the Idaho Republican Party. Quote, resolutions are a serious matter, Idaho Republican Party Executive Director Tyler Kelly said Thursday. They are usually either a call for action or a battle cry for the Idaho Republican Party. Kelly said the GOP Resolution Subcommittee denied the KCRC's request to endorse the John Birch Society as an affiliate organization for three reasons. One, misalignment of the John Birch Society and Idaho GOP political platforms. Two, the lack of John Birch Society transparency on financial documentation. And three, the failure by the John Birch Society to produce anti-discrimination or human resource policies. Idaho GOP Region 1 Chairman Bjorn Handeen said the Republican National Committee influenced the resolution subcommittee's decision. Quote, subcommittee chairman Trent Clark said he asked for and received direction from the RNC, who told him it would violate rules to endorse, support, or even embrace the organization. Handeen said, referring to Clark's former roles as the Idaho GOP state party chair and a lobbyist for Monsanto Corporation, Handing saw the decision as, quote, the sheer procedural artistry the establishment uses to assert their will when necessary. Quote, the decision was disappointing because I believe we as a grassroots had the votes, but in this instance, the power of the lobbyist class was unassailable, Handing said. The pure beauty of watching a procedural master like Mr. Clark so elegantly use Robert's rules to shape the direction of a committee of 16 people is mesmerizing. That is fun. But that was fun to talk to uh, these folks. You know, the the interesting thing was I actually had a great conversation with um, Tyler Kelly. He's a lovely human being. Good. And uh, Mr. Handeen was very openly uh, ready to talk to me about this. I have been following this, obviously, since it initially happened at the KCRC meeting, which I attended in July. I was invited to come. Um, and it it's it's been interesting following this story as the John Birch Society was not something I had learned about before. Mm-hmm. Um, I it, wasn't familiar with it either until you started writing about this. Exactly. And so it's interesting because it was an organization that was crafted out, out during the Cold War when communism and the risk of communism in our um, in the United States of America was a present concern. You know, it was a very it was something we didn't want here. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, the John Birch Society has been labeled as being racist or um, just not pleasant words um, because of, you know, their outcry against President Dwight D. Eisenhower as a communist, um, several other political figures, and the call to remove them from office uh, and other measures. And I think it's just interesting because this is an organization that was more or less dormant in our public conversation for decades mm-hmm. and is now here in North Idaho and very open. I've talked to many representatives of the John Burr Society that you know, it's just it's just an interesting com- it's an interesting time in my life. Let's just say, right, <laughs> right, right. All right, moving on. Community members, trustees debate mass. This is by Hannah Neff. Emotions ran high as parents, students, and other community members, many of them anti-maskers, voiced their opinions to the Coeur d'Alene School District Board of Trustees at the community forum Thursday night. Melanie Swaggerty, a parent from the court from Coeur d'Alene, said the thought of this school year running like the last is horrendous, with kids being sent home because of high COVID-19 numbers. Quote, we cannot keep doing this to children if we care about their mental well-being, Swaggerty said. We, quote, we had lots of tears last year. 
Stacy Gotcher of Coeur d'Alene said she felt the board overstepped its power and disregarded her rights as a parent. Quote, what we want and what we demand is that you respect us as parents. You return emails, you answer us, Gotcher said. At least, that, at least have the respect to address us because none of us parents would be this pissed off if you would respond to us. Others were open to a mask mandate. Quote, I do believe that without a mask mandate, we are putting uh, we are putting my son's life and the lives of other children who have not had an opportunity to get the vaccine at risk. Carrie Simonette of Coeur d'Alene said, unfortunately, in this community, we can't depend on, upon others to protect others, others vulnerable in our community, whether it's children or whether those children are taking the virus home to their parents or other people in the community. Misha Sagan, a parent from the from Cordelaine, said that one simple way to avoid disruptions and keep the schools open would be to uh, would be to require masks. "Quote: It's absolutely not a personal choice," she said. "When it comes to unvaccinated children, by not wearing a mask, you are breaking a community choice to potentially affect others." Randy Neal, a parent from Cordelaine, challenged the board to answer what gave them the rights to overstep themselves and overstep the Constitution of the United States. Trustee Jennifer Bremley, board chair, said the school district's authority to make various mandates or restrictions in their schoolhouse is permitted under law. Idaho Statute 33.512 grants school district trustees the power to, quote, exclude from school pupils with contagious or infectious diseases who are diagnosed or suspected as having the disease or, quote, those who are not immune to and have not been exposed to a contagious or infectious disease and, quote, to close close school based on consultation with the district health department of the public health district in which the school district is located. Sounds like a lot of angry people. (laughs) I think the world is just filled with the world is very angry. Yes. Yes. Um, I I think, I, I think there's a level of fatigue on this. I think people are just in general tired of it, which unfortunately might go around some logic that needs to be applied here. I think people are just tired. So they're regardless of what the stats show or anything, they don't want to do this anymore kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I think we started talking about COVID fatigue last year, Mm -hmm. you know, COVID fatigue was here and happening last June, Mm -hmm. you know? And so now I don't, it's not even COVID fatigue. It's COVID dismissiveness, COVID anger, COVID annoyance, you know, it's it's mm-hmm. not even that we're just tired of it. We're just like, we're done. Right. There's there's that segment of they're done. There's a segment of it that's become political. Mm-hmm. And maybe maybe there's a group that's both. Yeah. You know, it, it's just something that I think everyone has a stance on at this point. Mm-hmm. And there are different sides, which is completely fine. Absolutely cons- accepted. But I think it's just, it's, it's starting to really go into every parts of our lives mm-hmm. and really affect how people look at each other. Agreed. So it's, it's which I think is probably the most unfortunate part. It's, it's for some reason become dis, decisive, divisive. Mm-hmm. And that's probably one of the worst things about this. I would, I would say. I agree. All right. Let's go to Riverstone breaks ground on $15 million condo office project. This one's by Bill Buley. John Stone has retired three times, but the man behind the Riverstone development keeps coming back, this time for an estimated $15 million condo office project. He called it, quote, the last piece of development that we are doing in Riverstone. Uh, Stone said during the groundbreaking Thursday that we had to work real hard on this to get it fit financially. This marks the end of the 23 years of development at Riverstone, and we've been told this development has been the largest reclamation in the history of Idaho. Uh, Geno Construction is expected to begin work this month and plans to complete the project, quote, cornerstone within the year. We're glad to be a part of this team, Chris Perenia, uh, Geno Construction CEO, said. We think it's a great project. The four-story, 60,000-square-foot building designed by Architects West will include 12 condominiums, three penthouses, and an office space. So instead, it took more than two decades. It was more than two decades ago when he surveyed the property around the 170 acres near the Spokane River, just off Northwest Boulevard and Celtis Way. Quote, when we took on this project, it was a shuttered sawmill and mined out gravel pit, he said. Looking at it today, Stone said that he and his team have, quote, come a long ways. Today, it's home to businesses, shops, condos, apartments, healthcare, and financial professionals, hotels, restaurants, and a man-made lake. Stone said Riverstone has been a driver behind economic development in Coeur d'Alene. Quote, we had a dream of building a project that was a live work and walk project, and we think we've accomplished that. Hmm. 
I do like Riverstone, actually. It is a nice area. I've I've seen it. I grew up here, so I saw it as just a dirt lot. Yeah. Um, next to the river, and so it is. It has definitely become something that I never thought would it would be. Yeah, it is interesting too. Growing up in Boise, um, we have the village. Yes. So, which is a lot like Riverstone, um, and I wasn't really aware that people lived above the shops in that area. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's. I think that's really cool. I haven't been many times other than to go to the movie theater, but it is it is beautiful. Yeah, it's well made, and I think if you know one day more public interest were to go over to that area and really recreate or have, have a retail day there it could take alleviate some pressure downtown sure which as a person that lives downtown that would be nice <laughs> i get it. I, I totally understand it has it has become crowded even <laughs> you were just talking to somebody on the phone before we started recording about traffic so <laughs> makes sense all right that takes us out of quarterly post post press headlines and into the shoshone news press headlines for friday september 3rd headline off-road group plans to submit val- uh, validation forms. This is by Josh McDonald, follow-up on his previous story from Tuesday. The dust hasn't even remotely began to settle, begun to settle as the wheels of process are beginning to turn concerning the stretch of road following the maintained end of West Fork Pine Creek Road. Last weekend, it was discovered that Pine Creek resident Joe Avery had once again blocked off the road, this time utilizing a gate instead of it, the log blockade he had previously built over the road, which runs along Avery runs through Avery's property. While the ownership of the road has been in question for the last 12 months, it hit, it hit a fever pitch over the last few days as Avery's gate was placed, specifically as it was torn down, replaced, then asked to be taken down by Shoshone County officials. During a previous interview with Avery, he discussed how there are two different roads near his property that allow pro- people to access a section of lands owned by the Bureau of Land Management for recreational purposes. The lands in particular are near Middle Middle Fork Pine Creek Road and are specifically designed by the BLM as, quote, a motorized trail for rock crawling extreme four-wheeling activities, according to the Action RC 1.5.7 in their Resources Management Plan. The North Idaho Trailblazers is a group of off-roading enthusiasts who enjoy recreating on the BLM lands to the south of where Avery placed the gate, and and they are now in the process of petitioning Shoshone County to verify the roads. Shown County Commissioner Mike Fitzgerald explained the process of getting the road validated. Quote, when the roadway is not within a designated county right-of-way or defined within the, ro- the county roadway in- inventory, the county does not impose authority nor intervene, Fitzgerald said. For roads not in these two categories, individuals can ask the county to make a determination of the county's interest in a road. The determination is a formal process defined in Idaho call- code called validation. If asked to validate a road, the county is then obliged under Idaho code to make a determination of whether or not the road is a county or non-county road. Daryl Raver, the president of North Idaho Trailblazers, gave a statement where he believes that the road was maintained using public funds over the years and that there has been active maintenance. He also mentioned things such as limbed branches, removed deadfall, and said that anyone has driven over the road over the past few years could definitely recognize the upkeep that has gone on. In an official statement, uh, Raver discussed the trailblazer hopes for the road and expressed their thanks to the the county for outlining what their process needed to be in order to get the road verified. Quote, North Idaho trailblazers believe public property should be accessible to the public. The road in question was put into place around 1910, and everyone from old-time miners to present-day off-road recreationalists have been using the road for over a century. We believe that the criteria for the county to claim the road has been met and we're grateful that the leaders of Shoshone County are working to validate the road. This road provides the only reasonable public access to the vast areas of BLM land that have substantial recreational value. We look forward to the county's completion of the validation of the road for public use and that we plan to work with the BLM to increase access with the public support. As of Thursday night, the Shoshone County Board of County Commissioners had not received a formal submission requesting the validation of the road south of the West Fork Pine Creek Road. However, a member of the North Idaho Trailblazers has claimed the formal request will be submitted to the BOCC next week. Hmm. We will continue to follow that story. Interesting. It is. It has been a saga. Um, <laughs> something that you, you know, it's. It sounds like something that's so. We're you know we we're, we're always talking on these uh, headlines about you know COVID very serious matters. It just seems like almost a trail is not that important. But man, it's this this is a very dedicated group of people who go up there. I know I know a lot of them personally. Um, the rock crawlers themselves, um, whether I don't know if they're necessarily with that group, the trailblazers, but um, there's definitely you know friends with them and whatnot. I know a lot of these people personally. Uh, they go up there quite a bit. 
So it, it definitely seems like uh, something's going to have to be figured out um, behind the scenes after talking to all these involved parties. I think the question is just nobody knows who owns the road, which is, yeah, it, it makes it makes it difficult, you know, public county right of way, private property, BLM property. It's it's all kind of up in there at the moment until the county does this uh, validation. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, that's just like something you don't really think about as much. I know with my experience with looking at planning mm-hmm. stories and writing all that stuff, the whole right of way situation mm-hmm. is so tedious yep. and it's expensive to get the right of way to do something. So Madison, you can see right here, like the photo that accompanies it is the the GIS map uh-huh. that comes with it, like that basically outlines where who owns property in Shoshone County in that area. And you can see, so Gerald Avery, his his rectangle right there, that that vertical rectangle, but you can see the the road, it's not, you know, it's not like a normal road that cuts through the property. Like there are two defined lines there that cut through this property. So on the GIS, it, it clearly shows that while it's not necessarily on his property, it's also unmarked. So it doesn't say who owns the road, which can make things very complicated. Uh, you're telling me. <laughs> All right. Moving on down to the center of the page here. Walmart supports local Christmas programs. I worked this one up myself. Um, moving on or moving up. The, uh, the Silver Valley has been fortunate over the years to have so many programs that are committed to making the holiday season for local children special. Recently, Walmart and Smelterville showed its support for two of these programs when it presented checks to both the Shop with a Cop program and the Wallace Christmas Fund. Shop with a Cop, hosted by the Osborne Police Department, has Silver Valley children who meet certain criteria teaming up with law enforcement officials for a day of holiday shopping at the Smelterville Walmart. This will be the fifth year in a row that OPD has offered the program, excluding the 2020 COVID-19 year. Quote, Walmart has just been phenomenal with supporting the program year after year, OPD Chief uh, OPD Chief Daryl Broughton said, not only with the monetary donations, but as well as uh, we are at, uh, as well as while we are at the store shopping. Broughton stressed that, while, that Walmart's donation of $2,000 will help with the program's desperate need for donations to pay for this year's festivities. Combine the lack of donations from last year with the increased popularity of the event, OPD is preparing for more than 100 participating children this year by raising $20,000. These funds will cover the costs associated with holding the event, such as shopping money, food, wrapping supplies, and other miscellaneous items. While details of this year's program are still being determined, Broughton said COVID-19 precautions will be in place if needed. Quote, we are, if we are staying where we are at with a rise in numbers, we'll mix it up the program a little bit and spread it out over a two-week period with less kids in each group. Also benefiting from Walmart's generosity is the Wallace Christmas Fund, which also received a check for $2,000. Wallace Fund, Wallace Fund all, uh, goal is to provide presents to needy local families in and around Wallace during the holiday season. Aww. Yeah, it was just a, a warm and fuzzy story. We like warm and fuzzy stories we every do. once in a while. We, we really do. Uh, it's it's always nice to change things up a little bit. <laughs> See, who who says we only talk about bad things? You know, on that note, mm-hmm. so many times I hear people say, you know, we need more good news in the paper. And I actually do think our newspapers do a very good job at highlighting some of the good in our communities. Because I personally, as, mm-hmm. as a journalist, I write a lot of politics. And... Mm-hmm. That doesn't make me warm and fuzzy at the end of the day. So I always love it when I can get a happy future story. Maybe maybe when we develop the podcast more, we can do like a segment called The Lighter Side. And it's, it's, oh, it's, just, fun. it's just like two or three happy stories. It's kind of like when that whole joke about the kitty being saved from the tree at the end of a televised news podcast. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> All exactly. right. Well, let's head up north to the Daily Bee. Uh, Bonner County Daily Bee, the Wednesday headline, anti-mask mandate vote delayed. This one's by Anissa Keith. Commissioners have opted to delay a vote on a resolution that would ban mask mandates in Bonner County until next week. In the resolution, Commissioner Stephen Bradshaw said masks are unconstitutional and that efforts to force people to wear them are not legal. Because not all commissioners were president, Bradshaw and fellow Commissioner Jeff Connolly voted Tuesday to delay the action until Commissioner Chairman Dan McDonald was president. After Bradshaw introduced the resolution, Connolly asked him to explain the resolution, saying it felt political in nature. Quote, it seems political to me because, especially being as where you're sitting, 
probably taking on the current governor, Connolly said. It just seems like this is a repeat of what we said we would do. Bradshaw, who is a candidate in the 2022 gubernatorial race, disputed that characterization. Quote, I feel like it's the right thing to do, he said. It's not a political move. It's just something I think we should that should be done. Bradshaw said the resolution is aimed at preventing implementation of a mask mandate in the county. Quote, I think the mask should be your choice, not somebody else's choice, said Bradshaw on Tuesday. You have your right to choose who you're going to get medical treatment for and what uh, treatment you want. Connolly said that under new state regulations, Panhandle Health would need commissioner approval before implementing a mask mandate. Connolly said that he would not be voting for the resolution because it was, quote, unneeded, leaving the commissioners in a stalemate. Jess Webster, business operations manager for the commissioner's office, recommended the board wait until all three members were present. I did, was not aware that one of the Bonner County commissioners was running for governor. Hmm. I didn't know that. I know that now. Hmm. Uh, he should he should run on a strict dodgeball style <laughs> campaign. I know. We should we should solve all legislative arguments with dodgeball. Maybe. Like like we're we're in a deadlock. Like oh, it's, we can't we just can't get we can't get through this. Okay, three on three dodgeball. <laughs> Win, winner winner gets, takes all. Winner gets their legislation. <laughs> <laughs> I, I you know it's not. I always, I always joke. I have this very, very, very libertarian friend. Okay. Like, like, like almost Ron Swanson from Love Parks it. and Rec. Yeah. Um, and he made this argument that I, I, I honestly like was like, you know what? Maybe. And then no, but maybe. Uh, he, he is strict on like he wants to bring back legalized dueling. But, so, oh, God. oh, he walked me through this. Like, you, you go to the courthouse and you have to, like, sign documents. Like, it has to, can't be just, like, I challenge you and you hit him with, like, a glove or something. It doesn't work that way. Mm-hmm. You have to, like, you have to, like, this has to be a very planned thing. Like, weeks in advance. You have to, like, go to the, you have to be very determined to want to shoot at this person kind okay. of thing. You have to go to the courthouse. You have to sign paperwork, like, absolving your, like, both parties and everything like that. Okay. And it's, it, it's totally regulated. Like, it wouldn't be, when it can't be Wild West. But if you if you like wait the two weeks because you gotta you gotta wait you can't this can't be like we do this the next day because there, there'd be like a cool off period, but after you like you wait the two weeks and you sign all the paperwork and everything you still want to do this, he totally believes that you should be able to. Interesting. I right that's what I said. I'm like hmm, interesting. Because <laughs> on like my first knee jerk reaction is that's crazy, but then there are some day. <laughs> Some days I just want to duel. There are some days where I'd be like, I'd at, I'd at least fill out the paperwork. <laughs> I think everybody can 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 uh, sympathize with that. There's 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 those days. Not with you, Madison. I don't want to duel you. That's because you'd lose. Oh, go to the range every once in a while, Madison. <laughs> oh Lord. No, that wasn't. I was I was asking you. Like, do you go do you go to the range often? No. No. Oh, oh. you're not. <laughs> All right, let's move on before me and me and Chance get in a duel. Before we duel it out, what else do we got? Are we moving down? Oh, yes, we are. Thursday, September 2nd. Bipartisan commission begins redistricting process. This is by Anissa Keith. Idahoans may see a change in their elected officials as redistricting for congressional and legislative districts began on Wednesday to bring voting districts at both levels of government up to the constitutional standards. After the release of 2020 census information on August 16th, changes in uh, population revealed that all congressional districts need to reflect a 7,758 person increase or at least a close to that figure as possible. Redistricting is a process that takes place every 10 years after the release of the most recent census data. While redistricting used to be conducted by state legislators, this year an independent commission was established to redraw district lines. Idaho has two congressional districts and a regional legislators run in one of 35 legislative districts. Bonner County is located in the western congressional district and is split between two legislative districts. The first legislative district is represented by Heather Scott, Sage Dixon, and Senator Paul Woodward. It spans from the beginning of the U.S. 95 Long Bridge to the U.S.-Canadian border. The 7th Legislative District is represented by Carl Crabtree, Priscilla Giddings, and Paul Shepard. This is most of this is all of Shoshone County. It runs south of the Long Bridge, including the southern part of Bonner County and all of Shoshone, Clearwater, and Idaho counties. I, I will definitely use my own opinion on this. 
District 7 is drawn very strangely, Mm -hmm. and it does not make sense. Mm -hmm. Um, Geographically, maybe on a map, you can kind of loop them in. But as far as community-wise and people, it's... it's just not even like the people what you care about the people of the silver valley have no connection with the people of cottonwood or riggins you know what i mean like it's just they're so far away from each other that they're and it's 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 an hour two hour three hour drive to these places just and they're in somehow in the same legislative district um and as far same same with those folks in the southern part of bonner county it just that if there is going to be something redrawn uh that Probably needs to be addressed. Um, Bonner is one of seven counties that was split up in, split in the 2011 redistricting, but that might not be the case for much longer. Quote, Bonner County is way to the north. We hear from folks in the Clark Fork area how disenfranchised they actually have felt, said past Commissioner Randy Hansen. Hansen, who served as commissioner during the 2011 redistricting, addressed the new panel of commissioners on Wednesday via Zoom. Quote, these folks are really interested in getting a district that helps them feel more enfranchised, in who they're selecting as a legislator. So there's some work to do, Hansen said. Wednesday's meeting marks the beginning of the 90-day deadline that commissioners have to come up with a redistricting map they feel will be approved by the Idaho Supreme Court. Commissioners will travel throughout Idaho collecting public input and surveying areas that are considered for the new district lines. Citizens can participate in this process by attending commission meetings, dates, and times of which are still to be determined. They can also submit their own redistricting map to commissioners for consideration. Yeah, this is, um, like I said, but over in Shoshone, this has actually been followed fairly closely because... Um, the folks of Shoshone County have, that's a great word to use, disenfranchised. They have felt like, um, it's, it's kind of, if not to, not to be a North Idaho boy on this, but it's very much how North Idaho people feel about Southern Idaho and how the needs and wants of Southern Idaho usually are taken first because Boise is in the South Mm -hmm. and anything that the North at North Idaho wants is largely glossed over. Yeah, so this is, that's not always the case. It, it's, of course. it's this very serious conversation that I've heard many times, you know, um, not even just on day to day operations. But if you think about it, our landscape's different. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, uh, one thing that I always thought about, which was funny, because I went to University of Idaho, my family, f- for part of my education at university, lived down in Boise, mm-hmm. was that if you go through Riggins, it's a their temperature is usually 10 degrees warmer than yep. it is in Moscow. Yep. And they're their climate is entirely different. Mm-hmm. So trying to compare that to the needs of Shoshone County, which is lots of trees, yep. lumber, mining, yep. to Reagan's, which is not those things. Yep. You also have different influences as well. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I the number of times that North Idaho folks get angry when, you know, the, the, the generalization of an Idaho person is potatoes. Yes. Okay, well, there's no potato fields in the north. No. Idaho. Like none. Zero. None. So <laughs> it's like you don't hit potato fields until you're like south of McCall. So it's – we, you know, we always laugh about that. And even, you know, cultural influences. Up here, we're influenced a lot by Montana and eastern Washington. Uh, down south, that's more of a Utah, you know, influence from Salt Lake and whatnot. And there's a blending of culture with that. Um, even Wyoming on the eastern side of the state. So um, there, you've definitely got a lot of different influences on the, on the three ends. So as far as redistricting goes, um, I, I'm not going to sit here and say that I know the exact answer. I can't, I'm not going to be able to stare at a map and say like, oh, District 7 should look like this and District 1 should look like this. But it, it basically, I think com- instead of looking at a map and saying what is convenient geography wise, it needs to be looked at as community wise mm-hmm. you know the fact the fact that you know say the city of cataldo and rose lake and even harrison you know those areas tend to identify more with shoshone county and st mary's than they would with Coeur d'Alene. um they just it, you know that's just how it is so um maybe when when t- when you take when you consider all these communities maybe that's something that needs to be taken into account absolutely mm-hmm. i agree all right moving on what else do we got we got rural urges precautions amid COVID-19 surge. This one's by Emily Bonsant. Councilwoman Deb Ruel urged residents to take precautions amid a COVID-19 surge in North Idaho. Ruel's comments followed Governor Brad Little's calling up the National Guard Tuesday to assist with the rise in COVID-19 cases. Quote, our state and our hospitals are overwhelmed. Of the 400 ICU beds across the state, only four are left. And from what I understand, the worst part of our state is North Idaho, Ruel said. Using data from the Panhandle Health District website, Ruel showed that on August 30th, Bonner County broke its record of positive cases at 63. By August 31st, the community's cases were up to 79. 
Quote, as of September 1st, the county has 95 inpatients and 32 in critical care, Royal said. When I looked at the numbers yesterday, Tuesday, I believe it was 97 and 34. When you're in critical care and the total number of patients drops, my assumption is that those people probably passed away. Royal wants residents to be aware of the state and county to be saved. She personally encouraged the school boards to rethink their position on masking up in the schools. She said she would not want students returning into athletic seasons and extracurricular activities only to have things to be shut down, especially for seniors who might want to poten- who might potentially miss out on something they've worked for the for for the past four years. Quote, wearing a mask seems like a small price to pay for to stay in school and realize that although we may think we've gotten back to normal, it's quite evident that we are not back to normal and we are in a space where this is the worst it's ever been in the county. Ruel said, Mayor Shelby Rogstad thanked Ruel for her comments, adding that she, he encouraged everyone to get vaccinated if they already haven't. Quote, it's the best protection we have, Rogstad said. Hmm. As we've talked about. As we have talked about, absolutely. There's, I, I just, stats don't lie. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's any way really around that. All right, moving on to Friday, September 3rd headlines, LPOSD readies for upcoming school year. This is by Emily Bonsant. Lake Ponderay School District Superintendent Tom Albertson is looking forward to working with parents and students to create a positive learning experience in this coming school year. Quote, parents will be receiving communications directly from your child's school on the upcoming year, and I invite you to read the Lake Ponderay operational plan for the coming school year at LPOSD.org, Albertson said. While COVID-19 cases are rising in the county, Albertson said LPOSD's hope is to minimize disruption to students' learning as much as possible with school set up to start Tuesday. In creating its operational plan, the LPOSD takes all opinions of the plan seriously, trying to meet students' academic, social, and emotional needs. Quote, We all know the last year and a half have been difficult for many, Albertson said. It is going to take all our parts to reduce disruptions to school, and I am asking to please consider proper precautions for your students and family. The school district will not be shortening school days this year, Albertson said. Elementary students will be in their cohorts most of the day, and the district school will have staggered lunches to minimize large gatherings. In order to fill educational gaps from last year, LPOSD has added more paraprofessional hours. This is, an, this is an effort to provide students with much-needed one-on-one and small group instruction to help mitigate, uh, mitigate learning gaps. So far for this year, LPOSD has seen decrease in remote learning, but there are some families that will continue to remote learn at, at for at least the beginning of the school year, the superintendent said. To help, LP, LPOSD students will continue to have access to the Idaho Digital Learning Academy. Due to the recommendations of wearing a face covering when social distancing cannot be maintained, Albertson asked for parents to consider personal protection, uh, protection equipment options for their children. Fairly, Fairly standard stuff that's really every school district is is considering and looking into exactly mm-hmm. all right let's go to shooting suspect bound o- over for trial this one's by anisa keith a man accused of shooting two brothers following a july 23rd dispute over a dog has been sent to district court for trial paul ray stanley daniels 32 waived his right to a speedy trial on two counts of aggravated battery daniels was released on his own rec- reconnaissance wednesday on a hundred thousand dollar bail in exchange for his release daniels agreed to a no contact order gps tracking and to not possess firearms while waiting for arraignment on September 20th. According to court records, the shooting was part of an argument between Daniels and the two victims who happened to be brothers. According to those records, Daniels admitted to the sheriff's deputies that he shot the two with a 9mm Taurus handgun at a Sagal residence belonging to one of the victims. Law enforcement officials said that while the argument started over a dog, it is unknown if the dog was supposed to stay at the victim's house over the weekend. The dog belongs to a witness of the shooting. Two different statements to sheriff's deputies indicate that the altercation appears to have started after one of the victims approached the parked car in which Daniels was sitting. What started as a verbal argument escalated to pushing and shoving. Daniels told deputies that he decided to shoot at one of the victims after he saw a witness have one of the car doors partially closed on them, according to court records. After that, the witness said Daniels stepped in front of the car and proceeded to, quote, unload the clip on the boys, documents indicate. Quote, I feel it was 100% self-defense, Daniels told deputies after the shooting. Quote, I acted out of fear at and the moment. The victims were unable to give statements to law enforcement because they were already transported to area hospitals to treat their injuries. It is unknown if they are still being treated for these injuries at this time. Hmm. Interesting. One of my favorite clip quotes. <laughs> Unload the clip on the boys. It's definitely something. On the boys. 
uh, aside from the what was the what was it, the Mongol army? Oh, the Chinese zombie army army. That yes. was that was probably that my was, favorite thing right I ever read in my whole life. That was pretty good. Yeah. All right. Jumping further north to the Bonners Ferry Herald, school district and city work together to complete Garden Lane project. This is by Rose Shababy. After a project to turn Garden Lane from a dead end to a through street fell short of funding, the Boundary County School District stepped in to fill the difference. The project started after the city of Bonners Ferry received a $200,000 grant from the local Highway Technical Assistance Council. However, the project bid rang in at $69,000 over budget. The city was able to contribute $30,000 from state surplus funds dispersed earlier this year and reduce project costs by keeping work in-house. Still, this left the city $30,000 short. That's when school district officials entered the picture. In July, BCSD trustees voted to use the remainder of the state and the Safe and Drug-Free Schools grant to revitalize the west portion of Garden Lane. Superintendent Jen Baer said she felt the funds, which were designed to help construct a six-foot-wide pedestrian sidewalk, were a perfect fit for the project. The lack of through streets in Bonners Ferry creates heavy traffic buildup on the US-95. The traffic is particularly congested around the middle and high schools during peak times of the school day, City Administrator Lisa Alport said. The city and the school district hope that turning Garden Lane into a through street will help reduce traffic and relieve some of the pressure on the highway. To acknowledge the district's contribution to the city, uh, contribution, the city commissioned the Kootenai Wildlife Refuge to create molds of genuine badger paws. Those paws, representing the Bonners Ferry High School mascot, will be imprinted in the sidewalk along Garden Lane. That's very cool. Mm-hmm. I like that. Yeah, I like that story a lot. Yep, ending on a good note. Very cool. Glad glad something's going on up there. I've I've seen that traffic jam before up there. I've mm-hmm. driven through Bonner's Ferry during school time, and they're they're. I'm glad they're addressing it. All right, is that it, Madison? That is it. We're out of here. Okay. Well, once again, we'd like to thank Heckle Mining Company for sponsoring this episode. To learn more about Heckle Mining Company, please visit hecklemining.com. Thanks again for everybody for listening in. We really appreciate it. Please like, comment, and share all of our stuff on social media. If you're interested in the stories we talked about today or the ones we did not, check us out at www.cordellanepress.com, shoshonnewspress.com, bonnersferryherald.com, and the bonnercountydailybee.com. If you listen to us on a podcatcher, please subscribe or like or uh, follow us so you can get every episode as soon as it comes out. Yep. Thanks, guys. We appreciate you. Yes, we really do. Um, we've... We, the numbers have been growing. It shows that you guys are really interested in the show, and we it, it just makes us happy because we love doing the show. We love putting this product out, and it's just another way that you guys can get the news. Absolutely. Yep. All right, everybody. Thanks again for listening, and we will see you on Tuesday.